In the last episode, we explored how publicly funded schools evolved in Philadelphia. Starting as pretty wretched free schools for extremely poor white children, they developed into a formal system of schools that were open to all children in Pennsylvania, regardless of wealth. We learned about African-American trailblazers like Cordelia Atwell Jennings, Jacob C. White Jr., and of course, Carolyn LeCount, who were committed to uplifting their community through education. They went to work at a time when just a little over half of Black children attended school at all, and where less than a quarter attended publicly funded schools. In the years following the Civil War, these pioneering teachers saw that public funds were available for education, and they worked hard to gain access to these resources for their community. And that's where we'll pick up the story again. It's 1867 in Philadelphia, and our 21-year-old hero, Carolyn LeCount, is just starting her career as the principal at the Ohio Street School. Welcome to Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. The following is the fourth episode in a special series about educator and activist Carolyn LeCount. The first two episodes told the story of our city during and after the crisis of the Civil War and the triumphs and tragedies in the life of Carolyn LeCount. This episode is the second of two that will look at the importance of education in LeCount's life. And we'll see how LeCount's work in education remains relevant today. And one final thing. This episode marks the last in this grant-funded experiment of Found in Philadelphia. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I really need your help. If you'd like to be a part of where this podcast is going, I'd appreciate your feedback in a short online survey. I'll put a link to the survey in the show notes and also on the website blog at foundinphiladelphia.com. Thank you so much for participating. When we left Carolyn LeCount, she had just been made principal of the publicly funded Ohio Street School at the grand old age of 21. Over her nearly 50-year career, Carolyn LeCount put into action one of the resolutions made by her fellow activist and fiance, Octavius Valentine Caddo, and the Equal Rights League back in 1865. Where Pennsylvania law required a separate school for Black children, the Equal Rights League resolved, quote, as we know by experimental knowledge that colored children make greater advancement under the charge of colored teachers because they are better qualified by conventional circumstances outside of the schoolhouse. We consider it to be our incumbent duty to see to it that our schools are under the charge of colored teachers. And just like in the streetcar battles, LeCount dedicated her efforts to making sure that the ideals debated by men in great halls were actually making a difference in the daily lives of her community in Philadelphia. LeCount knew that the key to providing quality education to Black youth was to have talented Black educators and administrators who were in positions of authority. LeCount knew, in fact, that these two things were inextricably linked. In face of systemic racism, you couldn't have one without the other. And that was for two reasons. First, you needed well-trained Black teachers to prepare students for the challenges of being Black in America, for those circumstances outside of the schoolhouse. 
Second, you needed separate Black schools filled with only Black students in order to nurture and grow job opportunities for good Black teachers. Because in the 19th century, Black teachers were not hired to teach at all white or even mixed schools. LeCount saw that Black teachers and Black students needed each other to succeed. And the need for Black educators for Black youth creates a link to Dia Jones. We met Jones in the last episode. She's a dean at Mastery Charter School Shoemaker Campus, and she'll be returning to our conversation in this episode. After getting her master's degree at Temple, Jones was inspired to stay and teach in Philadelphia, about 150 years after LeCount became a teacher here, because she thought the city needed people like her. You know, especially in Philadelphia, you have a lot of students that look like me, but not a lot of teachers that look like them. And, you know, I live in the neighborhood. It's, it's, just, it's just something for them to see someone that looks like them. It's just been proven that if a Black student has at least one or two Black teachers, the student is more likely to be successful. And I want to take a moment to say that Philadelphia is full of incredible educators of all colors. And they are, quite frankly, my personal heroes right now, as they help my own kids get through this virtual education moment. So in this episode, I'll try to take an honest look at what lessons we can learn from past education innovators. Because if we're honest, we haven't moved into that idealistic future where the color of your skin doesn't limit your opportunities in this country. We have a lot more in common with late 19th century America than with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream. So if we want to make a difference for kids in public school now, maybe we can learn from those who paved the way for us in the past. From her position as principal at the Ohio Street School, LeCount worked hard to promote public schools taught by Black teachers for Black children. From 1867 onwards, LeCount used her influence to hire, promote, and advocate for Black educators throughout the Philadelphia school system. Starting with herself, LeCount hired her teachers predominantly from the pool of graduates from the Institute for Colored Youth. She is noted as giving 10 Black teachers their first teaching jobs, and eight of them were women. LeCount's commitment was particularly critical in these early years, as the Philadelphia Board of School Controllers voted in 1868 that no teachers of color could work in public schools attended by white children. And they meant any white children at all. Though these rules would be relaxed over the following decades, there remained a strong prejudice against hiring black teachers in predominantly white schools well into the 20th century. What's remarkable about LeCount is that she increased her authority and prominence over the years. LeCount used her position as principal of the Ohio Street School as a platform to advocate for her community, even through some extremely challenging times for her personally. In 1877, LeCount would have to relive the murder of her fiancé, Octavius Caddo, throughout a very public trial. Remember, Caddo had been killed during Election Day violence nearly six years earlier in 1871. Caddo's alleged murderer, Frank Kelly, had been on the run and was found hiding in Chicago. He was brought back to Philadelphia to face trial. But the trial was a farce. One of Kelly's key defense witnesses had previously been tried and acquitted for the murder of another Black man, Levi Bolden, during the same Election Day violence that killed Caddo in 1871. Kelly was vouched for by another alleged murderer and was eventually acquitted by an all-white jury. We don't know if LeCount and Caddo's friends and family had any hopes of justice, but the 10-day ordeal ending in this acquittal 
must have been devastating regardless. Then a year later, LeCount lost her brother, James Jr., at a young age. And he was more than just a brother. He was her competitor, her classmate, her peer, and a neighbor. We don't know the exact nature of their relationship, but there are signs that the LeCount children, James, Caroline, and Ada, remain close throughout their lives. James had attended Howard University, then went on to work in the U.S. Patent Office. When James returned to Philadelphia with his young family, he moved in a few doors down from their childhood home on Rodman Street. And at the end of their lives, Carolyn and her sister Ada would live together in Germantown. So losing James must have been a blow. But despite all of this, LeCount was staying focused and advocating for a bigger and better school for her community. In the same year that LeCount lost her brother, she also won a major professional victory. In 1878, 11 years after becoming principal of the Ohio Street School, LeCount successfully petitioned the school district of Philadelphia to build a new school expressly for her to replace the old Ohio Street School. The Ohio Street School building was torn down long ago to make way for a carpet mill, which was later demolished, and the site's now a community garden. LeCount's new school building was built at 2040 Lombard Street, and it was decided after, quote, considerable trouble to be named the Octavius V. Caddo School in honor of this educator, activist, and soldier. LeCount would now preside over her own school, built just for her, named in honor of her murdered fiancé. The Caddo School formally opened on April 17, 1879, at 3 p.m. with music, a prayer led by the Bishop of the AME Church, and a speech by Philadelphia's school ward president and philanthropist, Lewis Elkin, who we met in the last episode. The Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the school attracted a great deal of attention, being the first school purpose-built and opened for an all-Black teaching staff, which of course also meant an all-Black student body. That staff included Carolyn LeCount as principal, with her hand-picked teachers, Emma M. Miles, first assistant, Lucretia Miller, second assistant, and Elizabeth J. Ramsey, third assistant, all graduates from the Institute for Colored Youth. The school had 195 students in 1880, and then nearly doubled to 340 students by 1883, with attendance reported at 90%. This allowed LeCount to also double the number of her staff to six. A reporter for the New York Age visited the Caddo School and reported that it, quote, presents a pleasing scene from every point of view with its bright and cheerful classrooms. The Caddo School was similar to a modern elementary and middle school model that prepared students for, quote, high grammar schools, which would have been selective magnet high schools that you'd have to test into, like the Institute for Colored Youth. And later, when they accepted black students, schools like Central High and Girls High, LeCount's Caddo School went on to have a stellar reputation in the Black community. And by 1887, LeCount was listed as being one of the best educators in Philadelphia. And she was nationally recognized in Booker T. Washington's 1909 book, Story of the Negro, for her work in education. As a prominent and well-respected member of the community, LeCount remained a tireless and fearless advocate for African-American teachers in Philadelphia. There are two incidents that were public enough that they made the newspaper. In 1880, LeCount wrote a public letter in defense of Black teachers after a school board official suggested that African-American children were lagging behind 
because of inferior Black teachers. LeCount made sure to point out that Black teachers were actually often better trained than their white counterparts because Black teachers were required to perform better on the certification exam. Remember, a passing result for Black teachers was 70%, while white teachers only needed 65%. And later in 1891, LeCount championed one of her own teachers, Burton R. Young, to become the principal of Wilmot Public School in Frankfurt. And we have some of LeCount's own words here, so I've enlisted the talents of actor Siobhan Smith to bring LeCount's words to life. LeCount spoke in person to the Board of Education in support of Young, stating that he was, quote, fully qualified for the position and colored children should be taught by one of their own color. A newspaper article noted that LeCount presented a powerful argument and was clearly capable of taking on the entire school board on her own. Young was promoted to be principal, and the Wilmot School still stands at 1734 Meadow Street in the Frankfurt neighborhood. LeCount would continue as the principal of the O.V. Caddo School for the rest of her career. Many of her students went on to become, of course, teachers, principals, and superintendents in Philadelphia. But they also became physicians, lawyers, and clerks. The impact of LeCount's work within Philadelphia's African-American community can be seen by comparing two studies. First, we'll go back to the study by the Statistical Association from over 40 years earlier, which we dug into in the last episode. And second, looking at W.E.B. Du Bois's research for the Philadelphia Negro, published in 1899. Near the end of the century, Du Bois noted that 85% of school-age Black children regularly attended school. This was a big improvement over only 60% from 40 years earlier. Similarly, the rate of illiteracy had dropped from 45% in the 1850s to only 18% by 1890. And if you broke that down by age, for school children aged 10 to 20, only 6% were illiterate. Du Bois also dug into the data about Philadelphia schools. Of all the schools taught by Black teachers to Black youth, LeCount's Caddo School was by far the largest in 1896. The Caddo School had 290 students in regular attendance, though this was down from its peak of 340. And LeCount had close connections to the other schools mentioned in the study. The next largest school was the J.E. Hill School in Germantown, with 173 students. That was where LeCount's younger sister Ada taught. And the Robert Vox School, the school that was improved by Jacob C. White Jr., ran a close third with 141 students. And LeCount's younger sister, Ada, taught at the Robert Vaux School for a bit too. Du Bois received some of the statistics for his book from LeCount herself, which he recognizes in a footnote to his data that reads, quote, kindly furnished by the principals of these schools. Du Bois never mentions Carolyn LeCount by name, only referring to her as the principal of the Caddo School. And what about adults in the black community? How did LeCount's work affect them? Well, LeCount's school also had the largest number of older students attending night classes. Her school had one of the earliest and best organized adult education programs in the city. But LeCount was also a significant employer of Black educators. Du Bois noted that there were 40 Black teachers in Philadelphia in 1896, up from 16 in the 1850s. While 11 of these were employed at the private Institute for Colored Youth, LeCount's public school was a close second, employing nine Black teachers, or 20% of the Black educators in the city. 
It's clear that LeCount had built something truly remarkable within the public school system in late 19th century Philadelphia. She had created a quality school for Black students taught by Black educators. And beyond that, she had made a place for those hard-fought jobs for Black educators within the Philadelphia public school system. Unfortunately, Carolyn LeCount's experiment in providing quality education by Black teachers for Black youth was short-lived. The final decades of LeCount's career were a time when the rights she had spent her life fighting for seemed to be slipping away, both nationally and locally. On a national level, the era of Reconstruction came to an end with a political compromise made during the contested election of 1877. As a result of this compromise, Republican Rutherford B. Hayes was given the presidency. But Democrats in the South won an end to Reconstruction, and federal troops pulled out. The brief flowering of civil rights in the United States had come to an abrupt end, and the Jim Crow era was beginning. Then in 1883, the Supreme Court struck down the civil rights cases that were passed after the Civil War, deeming them unconstitutional. In 1896, the Supreme Court struck another blow when it handed down the Plessy v. Ferguson ruling. Just like Philadelphia's streetcar fight, the Plessy case was centered on racial segregation and transportation. Though the Plessy case involved the right to ride rail cars in New Orleans, but the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of segregation in this case under the separate but equal doctrine. The Plessy case paved the way for the Supreme Court to uphold the separate but equal doctrine for public education in the Cummings v. Board of Education decision of 1899. It would take another 60 years for new civil rights legislation to be passed. And at the local level in Philadelphia, LeCount saw racism erode the gains she had made in public education. And this came in the seemingly progressive guise of integration. Despite the state passing a law in 1881 that made segregation unlawful, schools remained separate but far from equal. There were simply not enough quality schools for black children throughout the city. So families had to decide between sending their children to schools nearby with white children or having them travel long distances across the city every day to attend one of the few all-black schools. And the truth is that some African-American families didn't want to send their kids to all-black schools some parents thought that sending their kids to better integrated schools was the answer. But attending school with white children during this time was problematic. The law might make it unlawful for black students to be barred from mostly white schools, but it couldn't end 100 years of racism. At some white schools, black children suffered humiliating discrimination on a daily basis. In 1899, African-American parents protested against Philadelphia schools that made their children sit in the, quote, Negro corner or in the back rows, that forced them to take a separate recess, that excluded their children from school celebrations, or made them recite Jim Crow minstrel pieces, and that continually taught their children that they were inferior and lazy and not part of the history of the United States. While some argued that mixed schools would break down prejudice, would promote racial harmony, LeCount and others like her thought integrated schools that were run in this way were more likely to foster racial hatred. LeCount would argue that schools staffed only with Black educators were more efficient, if not superior, for educating Black children. They were safe spaces in a racist society. 
In the face of white supremacy, LeCount believed Black schools staffed by well-trained Black educators needed to be separate in order to truly offer an equal education. And LeCount also knew that the end of all Black schools would impact job opportunities for Black teachers. In LeCount's mind, Black parents who pushed for integration as the remedy for quality education were slamming the door on teaching as a vocation for their community. She called these parents inconsistent. LeCount knew that giving up on all Black schools meant giving up control over hiring practices, too. But the school district's experiment with schools staffed exclusively by Black educators was coming to an end. Carolyn LeCount formally retired from the Caddo School on February 25, 1911. This event was celebrated with a large reception at the First African Baptist Church at 16th and Christian in recognition of her 46 years of teaching. The public ledger reported that LeCount gave a lecture in 1913 to the Negro Historical Society about her life and work at the Institute for Colored Youth, the Ohio Street School, and the Caddo School. The lecture was described as, quote, the result of painstaking research shaped in the choicest diction and presented with clarity and force. Every time I read that, I can't believe it. Over a hundred years ago, Carolyn LeCount told this story in her own words, and nobody wrote it down. I remain hopeful that someday her notes from this lecture will be found. LeCount's retirement must have been bittersweet because it also marked the end of the Octavius V. Caddo School and the school district support of schools run by an all-Black teaching staff. Her Caddo School merged with two other schools in a new large building built at 16th and Lombard and was named the Thomas Durham School. Durham was the head of the school district's seventh section at that time, but otherwise, pretty unremarkable guy. The Durham School still stands and is currently Independence Charter School. Though the Caddo School building has unfortunately been torn down and is today the site of the Lombard Street Swim Club. LeCount retired from where she'd been living at 716 South 18th Street to move in with her younger sister Ada LeCount Stokes in Germantown. I wonder what those years of retirement were like for her. In some ways, she was bearing the loss of Caddo yet again. This time, she lost the school that was wrapped up in Caddo's memory in their fight for equal rights. But the end of the Caddo School also meant the end of her career, of her ambitions, her fight for quality education and for Black teachers. 12 years after her retirement, Carolyn Rebecca LeCount died on January 24, 1923, just a few weeks shy of turning 77. There was a viewing two days later at her sister Ada's home, at 5627 Kenyon Street in Germantown. Services were held on the following morning at St. Barnabas P.E. Church, and then Carolyn LeCount was laid to rest in Eden Cemetery. Ada's home and St. Barnabas Church are no longer standing, but you can still visit Carolyn LeCount's gravesite at Eden Cemetery. In the decades following LeCount's death, what's called the Great Migration brought many African-American families from the South looking for a better life up north. This influx brought a surge in the Black population in Philadelphia. But this only led to increasing segregation in Philadelphia's public schools. And this wasn't through legal segregation, but was often established through residential redistricting. Schools remained separate and unequal, and Black educators no longer had control over their own schools. 
It wouldn't be until the 1930s and 40s that Black Philadelphians began to successfully advocate for representation within the school district leadership. But the Brown v. Board of Education ruling of 1954 would do little to end segregation in Philadelphia schools in the long term. Residential segregation, reinforced by white flight from urban centers, simply allowed segregation to continue. And while there have been experiments in Black-controlled schools since LeCount's time, they were rarely publicly funded, and they were never enough to serve everyone who might have benefited from them. So where are we today? Many of the issues that Carolyn LeCount was concerned with in Philadelphia over 100 years ago have not been resolved. Let's discuss African-American teachers first. What is the state of Black educators in Philadelphia today? Well, thanks to open data, we have a window into current demographics. Within the school district of Philadelphia, if you exclude charter schools, nearly half of all students identify as Black, while only about 24% of their teachers and counselors do. In contrast, about 66% of school district teachers and counselors identify as white, despite white students counting for just a little over 14% of the student population. While this sounds out of whack, because it is, I want to note that Philadelphia is actually doing better than the national average. According to a 2016 U.S. Department of Education study, only 18% of teachers nationwide were people of color. But Philadelphia clearly needs to do better to make sure that it has a talented core of teachers who look more like the students they teach. So when I talked to Dia Jones, dean at Mastery Charter School, about the importance of Black educators, and I read her the story of Carolyn LeCount arguing that Black children need to be taught by one of their own, it really seemed to resonate. Oh, wow, that just touches me. You know, yes, we're still fighting for the, some of the same things. Shout out to Carolyn LeCount for paving the way. So that means that, again, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and we must continue with this fight. Jones went on to explain that the lack of Black educators is still felt in classrooms today. She told me that Black people often ask each other, when did you have your first Black teacher? And she shared her own experience when she finally did have that Black teacher in her life. I had one, she was a business teacher, and she literally would teach the lesson and then teach the actual lesson. Mm -hmm. And so the actual lesson was, here's why you have to be successful in your community. And so it was pivotal. Even though my parents and my grandparents pushed me to do well, just hearing it from someone else outside of my family was real. So those are the, the uh, micro lessons that happen, typically when you're in a classroom with a teacher that looks just like you. And it's in these micro lessons where kids learn how to navigate through life outside of school. Because schools teach us way more than what is in the content of the lessons. Schools are social places. They're places of community that teach us about relationships, about working together with lots of different people. Schools offer time to dream about and explore future possibilities, but they also provide time to make mistakes and to learn about the pitfalls ahead in a safe space. And when things go wrong, either outside or inside school, it's so important to have someone in the school building that looks like you and can understand where you're coming from. Black children need to see a Black teacher somewhere, a Black educator somewhere in the building uh, where they are. It would be great to see someone that they can maybe talk to about an issue that's specific just to them, not outside of the classroom. Yeah. You know, and even if a classroom is tough, maybe there's even a teacher that has some, some different maybe biases. 
You know, who can you talk to about that if there's no one in the building that possibly looks like you? And having someone that just gets you, even in the small things, can mean the difference between a kid who wants to be at school and one who doesn't. My young ladies, you know, they're, oh God, hair is such a thing right now. I'm with eighth graders right now. So, you know, they're learning who they are and trying to get rid of some of the insecurities. So, you know, they'll have a bad hair day. And it's just, it's, it's like, poof, it's everywhere. And I'm like, okay, let's see what we can do. That right there, I mean, you, you t- definitely have a young friend for life. They know, okay, you understand where I've come, I'm coming from because you've been there. Yeah. And that just kind of makes a huge difference and makes you want to be in school that day. Yeah. And then you're there learning. But it's more than that. I'm recording this after Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have been declared the victors in the 2020 presidential election. And we all know after seeing Kamala Harris on that stage in Wilmington, that representation matters. Having an educator as a role model, someone who looks like you, the one who's an expert at the front of the class, or the principal leading the school, or the one on the national stage, it's powerful to see that potential and to have a teacher push you as a student, to say, I did this, so you can too. One of the things Jones and I talked about was the need to nurture and support high school students who show an interest in teaching now. In the 19th century, the African-American community created special tracks to educate the teachers of the future through what were then called normal schools. And we could do something like that now in Philly. We need that. Some folks that I've met that live in Hawaii and they say, oh, we have a program where you're in 11th and 12th grade. You can go to classes for, you know, up until lunchtime and then you'll go and you'll teach at the local elementary. I say, oh, that is awesome. So it's, it is definitely a dream of ours. It's something we've, we've talked about for quite some time. Again, once again, you know, the, the F word, funding. Until then, Joan pounces on any student who shows any interest in becoming a teacher at her school. And as soon as a student tells me I want to be a teacher, someone just told me yesterday. I said, oh, I have a, I have a program for you. And he's like, why do you always do that? I said, because we need to capture you now. You know, you know it's going to be tough. It's not easy. But I want to keep the passion up. I want to make sure that you're prepared for this fight to get into the classroom. While we try to grow the number of Black educators in the future, we need to keep working to provide quality education for Black youth in Philadelphia now. Because let's face it, we're still a pretty segregated city, and integrated schools are few and far between. A 2019 Washington Post analysis found that Philadelphia's public schools were still not integrated. This means that the majority of our schools have over 75% of the student population from one racial group. Despite having a diverse population, only 25% of our city schools reflect that diversity. But, like Carolyn LeCount, Many activists today aren't all that concerned with integrating the schools. When they talk about diversity, it's about hiring more diverse teachers so that staff look like the students that they teach and diversifying the curriculum so students can learn their own stories. The conversations around Philadelphia public schools are about protecting students and staff from racism and bias. They want equity, where students get the resources they need rather than equality, where all students are treated the same. They want changes in funding so that resources are both adequate to provide safe and supportive public schools for everyone and also equitable to make sure that the most vulnerable students, students of color, English language learners, homeless students, students living in poverty, that these students get the resources they need. Like Carolyn LeCount, they want justice. 
Jones knows that the bigger questions about quality education are huge and complex, especially right now when so many of our students are dealing with the challenges of virtual learning. It's not something that one person or one school is going to be able to untangle. You know, we talk about should we have been segregated? Were we better off? Mm -hmm. You know, and then what does desegregation mean? We leave our schools where, you know, it's a family, it's a tradition, it's a community. Um, and then we go to a white school. Is it that sitting in a seat next to a white person means that the school is better, that we're better off? I don't know. Some answers are yes. Some answers are absolutely no. Uh, because we, we gave up too much, yeah. so much. So then now, how do you grab that back? Then we have to change that mindset of, I don't want my child sitting next to this child. Or if this school is 30% African-American, then it's not going to be that great. Right. So we're talking about changing, you know, taking a huge shovel and just digging up some crap that America has been in for so long. Yeah. I don't know how we change that. I don't know. And it's scary because I don't think anyone really knows. Mm -mm. But Jones believes that we can't allow this weight of history to keep us from trying to make things better now. Our kids' education is just too important. She knows that there isn't one magical fix, but many possible solutions that can make a difference and that we move forward by listening. So I just think if we just continue to focus on talking to children, asking them what they need, talking to parents, asking them what they need, and then just trying our best to make sure we fulfill that need, I think we may be okay. Yeah. Now, the huger fights against racism and systemic racism and oppression, we can do our best to fight that, but that may be there. But then as we're fighting it, we don't want the years to progress, and then the children that are here don't get anything. Yeah. And so I like conversations like this. Because maybe someone can hear it. People can hear it and say, you know what? Let's put all our differences to the side, differences to the side, and make sure children get what they need for their futures. Yeah. Absolutely. I asked Jones how she keeps going, fighting this fight day after day. It's tough uh, because I have some pretty long days. And, you know, some days you, you're, you're in the bed and you're like, man, this alarm is about to go off and I am tired. And I say, you know, someone is gonna need something today from me. I've been given a lot. You know, my grandparents, my, my mom, they made sure that all of us had an education. They paid for our education. So that those two things kind of keep me going. You know, like the two words, you owe. You know, and then when I get here and the students do some crazy shenanigans and I'm laughing throughout the day, and I know at the end of the day, it was all worth it. Yeah. So what keeps me going definitely are the children and knowing that because so much was sacrificed for me, I want to make sure that I give back. I, I, I pay what I owe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I love it. You know, the kids are awesome. You want to hear more, right? Well, so do I. And that's why there will be two additional bonus Carolyn LeCount episodes coming up. These episodes will help us better understand LeCount's personality by relating some additional tales from her life many of which haven't been published anywhere yet. So I hope you'll come back and listen to those bonus episodes. We'll continue our conversation with Dia Jones and historian Chris Hayashida Knight, and we'll bring LeCount's words to life with the talents of actor Siobhan Smith. Together, we'll dig into LeCount's legacy as an activist and look at her complicated place within the evolution of school discipline. 
Thank you for listening to this special series of the Found in Philadelphia podcast. This podcast was made possible in part through a grant from the Athenaeum of Philadelphia. I'd like to thank Dia Jones, current Philadelphia educator, activist, and creator of the Educator blog. I continue to feel so lucky to have the time to meet with you earlier this year. This episode also gave you a taste of the vocal talents of Siobhan Smith, actor, director, and founder of the Grounded Theater Company, who will be back in the bonus episodes. Smith is currently working on a play about Carolyn LeCount, but you can enjoy Smith's work right now through the virtual Tea with Frederick Douglass event online. Smith wrote and directed this piece, which is part of the Ebenezer Maxwell Mansion's Black History Experience in Germantown. I'll put a link in the show notes. I also need to recognize the working from home support of Cyril Tayendier, an associate teaching professor and audio engineer at Drexel University and head of Mad Dragon Recording Studios. 